Magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox. On the web at mainboats.com. It's coming up on 10 o'clock and you're tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. Um, it's uh, WERU-FM Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, around the world at WERU.org. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio. It's the second Tuesday of the month. Boat Talk is a call-in show that happens at 10 a.m. on the second Tuesday. A call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. And it's a show right now that's at its binnacle of success at every turn. And we have a little bit of uh, local news and uh, miscellaneous items from out of the news first to talk with you. And then we're going to be getting a call. We'd like to ask you to hold your calls until after we make our first call just to keep the, the phone lines open. And I do have a a, uh, a message from, from Mr. Big that the sun is affecting the broadcast of WERU right now. We've had calls, people asking if it we're on low power. Uh, nope, it seems to be there's some uh, some sort of a funkiness coming in from the sun right now, making things a little strange. Mr. Big, I missed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That's whoever runs the sun. You know? Yeah. Well, Botox this morning, Yahoo, uh, December 12-12, uh, and... We've got a couple plans this morning, which is always an interesting thing. We've got kind of kind of a full boat this morning, so to speak. And uh, Boat Talk goes to the movies. Yeah. We are going to talk, uh, hopefully, early on this hour with our friend Steve Callahan. Steve survived uh, 76 days adrift in a life raft, wrote a great book called Adrift, True Story, and uh, was a survival safety consultant on The Life of Pi, brand-new Hollywood movie. That I haven't seen that movie yet, but it looks like it's going to be very interesting. It's got great reviews. Great re- reviews. Yeah. And later in the hour, we hope to talk to Greg Roscoe down in Falmouth. And Greg is Seaworthy Productions. He's making a movie called, wait for it, Raw Faith. <laughs> yep. It rises again. Raw Faith, the movie. Uh, not much story for a movie there, but he'll, he'll come up with something. And uh, that, that's uh, kind of sarcastic. There's a lot of material there. There is. So, uh, Greg Roscoe. Boat Talk goes to the movies now. Uh, we hope to get Steve Callahan on the phone about 10 past, but in the meantime, we've got a few uh, uh, notes from the news from the last month or so, and we have been covering right along the brand-new uh, Belfast Shipyard down there in the corner of the harbor in Belfast. Yeah, after the mega yacht already. Yeah, they're after the mega-yacht uh, market, which is excellent, and these are very knowledgeable people that are already in business and in the boat business otherwise. And uh, they're employing 80 people there right now. They'd like to expand already. Hmm. They've got boats in there that uh, they, they can't haul. The boats are too big. They want a bigger travel lift. They need more space. They want at least another building. They're asking the city of Belfast to buy more property. 
and uh, specifically a parking lot that the boatyard uses right now, uh, possibly the uh, place where the maskers, Belfast maskers is, and uh, they want more property. Now, that could mean 40 more jobs to Belfast. Those are good jobs. But there's other people in the Belfast uh, uh, structure down there that are worried about too many eggs in one basket. So Front Street Shipyard is, uh, like I say, they're booming down there. Good thing. Well, yeah, booming is a good thing. Yep. Um, but it's uh, kind of a tricky business, too. It so does take a lot of space, and I, I see their point of it. Uh, goes without saying in the boat uh, business. You know, tricky business, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, shrimp. This the shrimp's, is a sad tale. The shrimp's a good one, Alan. <laughs> He's the punny one. The shrimp season starts uh, traditionally the 1st of December, but this year it's looking pretty desperate because there ain't slim. hardly no shrimp. Yeah. Wasn't good last year apparently either. Part of the problem is shrimp is at the southern end of their habitat in the Gulf of Maine. They're a northern species. They're very cold water species. Um, in the 50s, we had a problem with the Gulf of Maine heating up, and it really did a number on the shrimp. It's happening again. And the shrimp can't escape the Gulf of Maine because uh, part of the, the beauty of the Gulf of Maine, it looks open, but underwater it's really not. It's, it's kind of closed in by George's Bank. It's kind of a captured body of water. Um, and for the shrimp to escape, they got to go south through the warm water, and that ain't going to happen for them. So... Uh, the proposal is to wait till mid-February after they have spawned and then try to catch some of the little critters. So delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the shrimp season, uh, watch out for shrimp this year. I don't know if you got a, a shrimp CSA uh, in your past or future, but again, a hard year for the shrimp this year. Well, let me let me cut into this next one here. This, this makes sense following when you're talking about shrimp. Sounds like in the future we're only going to be getting our, the jumbo shrimp from down in the Gulf. And um, there happens to be a new study just out from a magazine, a scientific journal entitled The Environmental Pollution. What a name for a magazine. Environmental Pollution. But anyway, they have an article saying that the mixture of Corexit, remember the dispersant they used in the Gulf spill, the mixture of Corexit and the oil now has made it 52 times more toxic. And um, remember your biology background, Mike, uh, you might recall what a rotifer is. Very small, little microscopic animals. They have an eye spot and a stomach and um, one or two feet. They're like the very bottom of the the food chain kind of animals. Anyway, they're getting terribly killed by this new combination of Corexit and uh, oil to the point now where there's a lot of starving fish and shrimp use rotifers for food, uh, crabs and all larval fish. Alan, I'm almost positive I saw a commercial on television last night ah, from yes. British BP. The Things Gulf is open oh. for business. It's never been better <laughs> down there. All the oil disappeared. Rush Limbaugh told me that. Yeah. It never really was a problem, Alan. And obviously that Corexic stuff, I mean, you want the heavy-duty stuff, apparently, don't you? Right. And again, uh, oh, mess with Mother Nature at your peril. Uh, reading, uh, looking at a book uh, uh, about Rachel Carson. This is a new biography out on Rachel Carson. I'm sorry, I don't have the title of the author right here. But uh, they were talking about uh, DDT, and one fellow wrote a letter into the New Yorker magazine, which was serializing Silent Spring. He says, look, he says, we can live without bugs and, and uh, bushes. He says, we need business. Oh, boy. And the fact is, you can't live without bugs and business. There are no bushes. There is no business. So, um Good luck with that. 
Speaking of that, the uh, Maine Sea Grant uh, Symposium got together. Uh, it's our friend Paul Anderson, uh, among other people, uh, started Bronze Wound here right. on WRU yep. back a in the day. Great guys. Yeah. Uh, they held an international conference on lobstering back at the 1st of December. And uh, people from Atlantic Canada, Europe, and, uh, of course, uh, America here. And they're talking about the changing lobster fishery with climate change and stuff. And, you know, it's gone to hell down south of here. The lobster fishery has lost 99% of its landings in Rhode Island, Long Mm -hmm. Island area. 99%. That's another indication of warming there, too. And speaking of having all our our eggs in one basket here, it's our dominant fishery now. And uh, there's no sign that that, uh, we're in imminent peril of, of collapse, but... It's to worry about, and here's to worry. Lobster, from the Bangor Daily News, lobster cannibalism surfaces in Maine crustacean population. Surfaces, I get it. Yeah, well, um, and so these uh, same scientists are, they're studying predation in juvenile lobsters, and here's what we do. We, We tie a juvenile lobster to the bottom of the Gulf of Maine on a leash in front of an infrared camera. Yeah, PETA's not going to like this. That sounds kind of, sounds a little hinky to start with. Uh, And we watch and see who comes along and wants to hang out with them or eat them, you know. And, of course, the dominant uh, predator was like codfish, bottom fish, uh, that sort of thing. Um, They're finding now that the lobsters are eating each other. The adult lobsters are eating the juveniles, and that happens at night. And they found that Eight out of ten predations at night are lobster on lobster, and this is new. Yeah, there are too many of them. There's not an, uh, they've they've uh, overtaken the habitat a bit. They're uh, down on their predators, and they're turning on each other. One more little picture for you. Uh, we're also talking uh, nowadays about handling lobsters and trying to come up with better systems for that. Catching it's one thing; you got to sell it, and you don't want any wastage and stuff. The traditional uh, scheme on the coast of Maine has been lobster pounds. We take a little dent in the in the uh, shoreline and we we dam it off, and we fill it with captured lobsters, and we throw some herring in there uh, every once in a while, and we wait until the price goes up in February or something, and and then we get them out of the pound and we sell them. Now, when they're in that pound, nobody knows what's happening down there, and it's a very uh, surreal environment because you have now put way too many lobsters in yeah, a very tight space. You get cannibalism there too. A diver friend of mine used to have the job to go into the pound and and put them into nets. Now let's imagine a science fiction horror movie. Okay, are they banded? Some of them are. Uh, uh, most of them are, but not all of them have <laughs> their bands on. Okay. Yeah. And they're already a little stressed from being too many in one spot. You're down there in the mud looking for the, you got to put them in a, in a sack, and they're crawling all over you and attacking you. Mm. And try and imagine that as a little uh, science fiction. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a Let alone they, they want to eat each other. So that's where we're at here with the news Yeah. Uh, for okay. this month, more or less. Okay. We do have uh, Steve on the phone already, I believe. So let's go right to Steve Callahan. Good morning, Good Steve. Good morning. How you doing? Good. How are you? Great, Steve. Oh, okay. Good talk right. to you this morning. Yeah, likewise. Uh, we got Steve out of the house this morning for better cell reception, and yeah. uh, so we have to be a little conscious of his situation there, sitting in the car. Yeah, that's all right. I'm looking out. I'm at uh, Lemoyne State Park, looking right out at the water, in the eye, the whole shooting match, and it couldn't be better. Good scene, man. Steve, you're you're uh, I'm proud proud to call your friend, and uh, you are a little famous. You you uh, were sailing a a boat you built. 
uh, back across the Atlantic Ocean one time from, I think it was the Canary Islands, headed for the Caribbean. The boat sank out from under you. You spent uh, 76 days in a life raft, washed up in the Eastern Caribbean, and wrote a book called Adrift, which was a New York Times bestseller. Um, you just recently were the safety survival consultant on the brand new movie Life of Pi. How did they get a hold of you? How, how'd, that, how'd, how'd that phone happen to ring that way? Um, well, uh, I, I, I know you've read Life of Pi, and a whole lot of other people have, obviously, by now, especially. Um, and buried in the book someplace uh, in the story is um, uh, the characters uh, or the narrators talking about, you know, well, is this possible somebody could be adrift for a very long time? And they mention, uh, Jan Martel, the author, mentions uh, three survivors, uh, myself, uh, Dougal Robertson, who was adrift with his family in the Pacific for 38 days and wrote a fantastic book, Survive the Savage Seas, that a lot of people know about, and Poon Lim, who was a uh, Chinese steward on a ship that was torpedoed during the Second World War and surfaced and had a kind of a square, solid raft with, uh, you know, flotation drums and a little canopy on the top and whatnot. And he drifted for an astounding 133 days uh, and ended up off of Brazil uh, back in the war. And uh, there was, he never wrote a book, but there was, uh, uh, been stories about him in a book uh, called Soul Survivor written by Ruth Ann McCunn, I think is her name, um, about his venture. And obviously, Jan Martel read our books. Um, he, as far as I know, he doesn't really have any ocean-going experience himself, and uh, since that's a big part of Life of Pi, this Indian boy who ends up in a lifeboat with uh, kind of a menagerie of animals, uh, most of whom are soon dispatched, and uh, ends up with uh, a tiger on the boat, um, is adrift for, I think it's a total of 227 days in the, in the novel. And uh, so he mentions all of us, and I think uh, what happened was uh, since uh, Poon Lim is, is dead and Dula Robertson is dead, I was probably a little easier to track down. All right, buddy. <laughs> and uh, I got a call from Ang Lee, the director's um, uh, longtime partner and assistant, and uh, he said, uh, well, uh, you know, Ang, uh, he didn't know what I knew about movies. I'm a real movie, kind of a movie nut anyway, and I'm, I've been fond of Ang Lee movies, and so I knew who he was. And he said, well, Ang doesn't have any boating experience or anything, but he's thinking about making this movie, Life of Pi. Would you be interested in, you know, meeting him? He and scriptwriter David McGee would like to come up and visit you and see if they could go out on a boat and all this stuff. And so we arranged that, and um, it actually was you know, kind of a serendipitous for me because my wife and I had been in Australia for a couple of years refitting a boat down there and I was writing a column for Cruising World and whatnot. And Lynn and Larry Pardee, who are well-known to sailing circles, um, are friends. And Lynn had sent me a copy of Life of Pi when we were down there. And uh, I'd read the book, you know, and was entertained by it and whatnot. But when I was reading it, I was always thinking oh, that's impossible, that could never happen, you know, or not that way and whatnot. But I couldn't help myself from saying, well, maybe I could make it happen that way, or maybe I could make this more realistic. So when Ang came up, um, we went out, um, chartered a little friendship sloop from Northeast Harbor, and we took, um, 
Ang and David out in an absolutely horrible day in a, what I call a frizzle, <laughs> one of those freezing drizzle fogs that's yeah. so thick you see it and you're soaked in 15 minutes even if you have foul weather gear on and they were great sports about it and really curious Ang is you know always looking around very curious about you know how the boat moves how does it feel and all that and David is often voted the guy you most want to sit down and have a beer with he's just delightful company and so we had a great day you know talking about movies and boats in the ocean and then we met the next day and uh they kind of debriefed me i had a bunch of material about oceanography sea life all that but they were also interested in the more general aspects um i don't know anybody who's read adrift uh may see you know there's spiritual aspects in it they kind of bury they're not really in your face but they're there and there are a lot of parallels with life of pi um even though Mine's nonfiction. I always looked at when I even wrote Adrift, I kind of considered it a, a nonfiction allegorical tale where I'm kind of the witness to this thing. I'm not really the star of the show. It's the environment that's the star of the show, as far as I'm concerned. And there are a lot of themes, even, that are talked about in Life of Pi that parallel, I think parallel Adrift. So I could get involved. And by this time, I'd reread the book, and I'd had a initial script and whatnot so we talked about a bunch of stuff and uh, some stories that i was telling them actually ended up being parts of scenes or inspiring scenes i should say in the movie but then they went away and i figured you know i know how movies are you know they, there's a lot of talk about making this movie and that movie but it's like one out of about a thousand actually gets made and i figured well that was a fun experience but i'll never hear from them again but and uh, that was in 2009, and in 2010, I was actually recovering from surgery in Boston, and I got a call from a producer, David Womark, and he said, well, we've gotten the green light, we're making the movie, you want to come to Taiwan. So as soon as I was actually physically able to board a plane, I was off to Taiwan and worked in 2000, late 2010, and through all the principal shooting in 2011 on actually making the film and some post-production stuff and whatnot, and ended up with actually quite a few roles um technically i'm i i was the uh nautical and survival consultant but i ended up with my finger in all kinds of pies including so to speak including uh, running a wave tank and you know making designing and making props and dealing with art and makeup and all kinds and coaching the actor and like i said giving feedback on the script and and uh, sort of designing the ocean set, if you will, and that, that kind of thing. So it was a great, fun adventure. I kept telling Ang, as much like a voyage, you know, it's anything worth doing is usually a lot more trouble than you can ever imagine to begin with. And this was certainly his most challenging movie. He was exhausted by doing this. Um, we were doing a lot of things that had never been done before. And... Um, it, it was a huge challenge, took an immense amount of time and effort from, I mean, literally thousands of people, incredibly talented people. And often when you're doing it, it's like, why am I doing this again? <laughs> or why am I doing it in the first place? But by the end of it, it's like, it was, it was really a, a fulfilling uh, voyage for me. Sounds like nice work if you can get it. The yeah. movie was reviewed. Uh, one of the reviews I got here calls the film, uh, calls the book unfilmable. Yeah. Which is interesting. And all the reviews agree that it is visually stunning. From the Rolling Stone, it says, uh, Lee uses 3D with the delicacy and lyricism of a poet. You don't just watch this movie, you live it. 
Life of Pi invades the mind with eyes that are dazzled. Um, while you're watching this movie being made, you're, you're a big movie fan. Um, it's got to be uh, like making wa- watching sausage making to uh, watch a movie being made. Uh, and you obviously have no idea what the product's going to be till you see it. So you finally did get to see the movie. Yeah, I did. I got to see it. Uh, actually, I've seen it twice now. I'm, I've got some health issues, so I'm very limited about being in public, but uh, a bunch of buddies, and we went up to uh, to Bangor and saw it in where it's being shown in 2D and 3D. And I, w- I would suggest making it in 3D, and there's seeing it in 3D, um, because that's the way it was made. It's 3D that when... 3D is its own new art form, and, you know, a lot of movies are being redone in 3D, but it's different. It's almost like the old Viewmasters, where you have these several planes that are in depth, but it's always the same, and the, the, each plane tends to be very 2D-ish to me. It's, it's a different look. When you're filming in 3D, the cameras, you actually have two, sort of two cameras, and they work like your eyes. They're focused, you know, in, with a different parallax. So you design the scenes to be filmed in different ways. Some scenes are have less depth of field than others. Some, you know, you, you have these like little creatures like come out and almost hovering over the audience, and you have this huge sense of depth. And then other ones, like they're talking in the apartment, where it's more subtle. It's not in your face, and everything's a little bit more rounded. And that's the way the movie was filmed. So that's the way I would see it personally. But if you have a choice, but I think it works in 2D too, at least. What I, from what I've heard from people, but in terms of the the look of it, yeah, it is a bit like sausage making. I mean, we had all, all we had separate tanks and different stage sets and boats set on gimbals that rock around and stuff like that. But m- the primary shooting was in the wave tank that was created in Taiwan. That's basically the size of a football field, ten feet deep, carries about two million gallons of water and has these wave generators, um, which actually we couldn't even turn up all the way because if we did, we would have emptied the pool. And uh, so what we were aiming at was to create, it's kind of like being, trying to do it in a bathtub because you get refraction problems and stuff like that. And it's very complex machinery. Uh, so we had to learn how to operate this thing and vary the surfaces so that we're hopefully we were approaching something that looked realistic in realistic ocean conditions. And that was a big part of my job because Ang always wanted something different. And then that all gets blended with computer graphics into backgrounds. There's the, the visual effects people have immense amount of, of visual resources and they go to places to film real ocean water and real skies and all that. Plus I gave them a ton of reference material. And magically, they blend it all together. And the basic aim was, well, from my point of view, anyway, I, Ang told me as soon as I got off the plane, he said, what I really want you to do is I want you to bring authenticity to the film and to make it convincing. And so there's always this tug of war between making something look real and the fantastic nature of the story, Ang's taste towards kind of the fantastic. And the fact of the matter is that you can never make any art form real. I, even a drift, I say in a drift right up front, this is not the real story. You wouldn't want a re- the, the reality of 
times of boredom and being in constant pain and whatnot, this is a story. It's an element of my story, you know, and which is what Life of Pi is all about, even the importance of story and, you know, how do you interpret life and events and God and all this stuff. And so our charge was to make it, to bring people in and make it realistic enough that you can really absorb people uh, visually. Plus, a lot of the story has to be told visually because there's not a lot of dialogue, so we have to convey things like Life of Pi's arc is a, is a survivor through little detail, the evolution of his raft and his clothes and the pace of the story through the look of the sky and the sea and all of that. And what really attracted me to, to the project, actually, initially, was that Ang described to me on the phone before, before I went to Taiwan. He said, you know what I want to do is to make the ocean a major character in this movie. And that was very refreshing to me because a lot of movies have been made where the ocean is a setting. But he really wanted me to help him reveal the diversity of the ocean and all of its moods and all of its wonder and magic and mystery as well as its dangers and, you know, um, and discomforts. And so if we were able to do that, and it seems like we were somehow, um, even though it's not exactly real, it's kind of expressionistic, if you will. I think they really ended up with a very nice balance, and it and it seems to be attracting people to the theater. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, a lot more people will be tuned in to uh, to the open ocean environment and in all of its diversity, and uh, perhaps care a little bit more about what's going on out there now. This film uh, suffered from a little bit of time and issue. It came out the exact same time as James Bond, the new Twilight movie, and the Lincoln film as well. So it got a little, little lost in the shuffle there. Um, talking about realism and stuff, um, uh, just a quick aside, the uh, perfect storm. I didn't think they got the storm right, Steve. You know, uh, didn't, yeah. I really didn't. But uh, let's back up for a second. From the end, uh, end of the book here... Uh, Oh, what do you call it, the uh, end cover here? It says, Pai Patel, a God-loving boy and the son of a zookeeper, has a fervent love of stories and practices not only his native Hinduism, but also Christianity and Islam. When Pai is 16, his family and their zoo animals emigrate from India to North America aboard a Japanese cargo ship. Alas, the ship sinks, and Pai finds himself in a lifeboat. His only companions, a hyena an orangutan, and a wounded zebra, and a 450-pound Bengal tiger. Mm -hmm. Soon the tiger has dispatched all but Pi. Can Pi and the tiger find their way to land? Can Pi's fear, knowledge, and cunning keep him alive until they do so? Um, so we got a tiger and a boy and a life raft. Uh, the tiger's not real, though, is it? Well, actually, there were real tigers. Um we had a kind of a, a whole little zoo at the set. There was a, a hyena named Vlad, and there were, uh, I believe there were four or five tigers there. Um, the one that's most featured is named King, who is very wild, uh, but not as ferocious as uh, a couple of the females. I mean, these are very wild animals. There was one which uh, which was more tame, uh, got walked around kind of on a leash by his trainer. But the others are, you, you definitely, um, you, you, you got to have a trainer around. The, there was a lot of footage that was taken. They were trained to do different things in the lifeboat. Um, 
including some real scenes, like there's a scene where the um, the tiger ends up jumping overboard in the water, which is quite a trick to get a tiger to do unless it's a, a very special kind of tiger. I guess there are tigers in Bangladesh that swim and whatnot. But that took a huge amount of doing, but that's actually real footage. Um, and then that gets spliced together with computer graphic footage. They, they take a lot of reference uh, material from watching tigers and filming them in zoos, how they move, how they look, how their fur moves, all this stuff, and somehow magically put it all together. So the actor in the tiger are never in the lifeboat at the same time, um, but... That's, you know, a, that's a survival ploy right there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing how I can't... Re- honestly, I know personally what a lot of the real footage is and what a lot of the fake is but i can't visually tell the difference Hmm. and um you know like the actor might work either with with thin air you know pretending something's there or sometimes he'd use a stuffy as we call them you know a little a, a stuffed animal to interact with uh, but he's never actually with the tiger. But the, the, a lot of that footage is actual real tiger. And uh, like I said, we had this enclosure and these these wild animals there as well. So that was quite quite interesting. And the kid wasn't even a real actor. This is his first gig, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I think he'd done a high school play or something. And actually, he went with his his brother wanted to try out for the role. They had a, a call in India, uh, and they wanted to. They, they looked at about 3,000 kids, as I recall, who came down and read parts and whatnot. And so Suraj, uh, who uh, stars as Pi, the teenage Pi, um, went with his brother and just read a scene, and, and Ang saw something in this kid, right? He said, he, he said, as soon as he read this scene, he had us all in tears, and we knew he was the guy. And um, when I met him initially in Taiwan... Uh, we 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 arranged to go out in this Coast Guard boat so that everybody in the crew would have some kind of an idea of what the open ocean was like and whatnot, hmm. and uh, and to test a couple of the the rafts that were begin the proto rafts um, to see how well they might work. And so did you go out? He in, was on in, the in boat. A, Sorry, did you go out in, in lumpy weather or was it fairly? It was calm? Pre- it was mm, modest. For us, for us, it would be modest. For a lot of people, they go, oh, this is really rough. But it was like, yeah, I don't know. It was modest, you know, offshore stuff, you know, six-foot, eight-foot waves or something maybe. Um, it wasn't horrendous, but it wasn't flat either. Right. And um, so, you know, Surge was on the boat, and he was out, and he just seemed like a typical teenage kid, you know, kind of he's brought up middle class. He didn't really have a lot of life experience. He didn't even know how to swim. Yeah. And... Um, frankly, I mean, I was wondering, I was like, geez, I don't know if this kid's going to be up to this. And he didn't really seem to even take it all that seriously, like even, you know, trying out or whatever. And so we had a lot of worries whether he was going to actually be able to pull this off because you got this, creating this huge business essentially around him. And if anything happens to him or he doesn't step up to the plate, it's a disaster for, you know, a huge number of people. But through time, uh, there was a stuntman, uh, Charlie Crowell, and his son, Cameron, who took him under their wing and trained him. And by the end of the film, he was a champion swimmer. He could do all this stuff underwater for minutes. And he did a lot of his own stunts, which was also a worry because if the actor gets hurt, you know, the movie's done. And some of these stunts are actually pretty, could be dangerous. You could get seriously hurt. So 
he really stepped up to the plate, and I we watched him before our eyes literally grow up. I mean, and in some ways he was maturing too fast because when he was cast for the role, you know, he's this teenage kid, and he got really hairy and all this stuff during the filming. So it was like trying to keep him looking young, you know, through the through the through the whole process. And um, but I'm very proud of him. I think that he he just did an amazing job, and I, um, you know, from what I hear from other people, anyway, they just think, oh, he's terrific. He's really good. So there you go. Boy, you just don't know how how your life will bounce and echo. I mean, uh, you know, you let's ask you the boat talk question. And and mind you, we talked to you years ago about your experience adrift there. What what uh, happened to you when you were a kid, Steve, that made you stupid about boats and you grew up and built your own boat and sailed it across the ocean and stuff? Yeah, geez, I don't know. My whole life, is, I've been having a lot of uh, nostalgic moments this year, especially because, like I say, my, my life's kind of divvied up in you know a lot of mini chapters and stuff like that, but I've been thinking about it. I have a, my life has really been divvied up in 30-year chunks. Uh, I just turned 60 in January, and when I turned 30, I actually had my birthday in the life raft. <laughs> and uh, my 60th birthday, I had a ride in the hospital bed up in Bangor uh, with a fairly, frankly, kind of dire outlook at the time. And now I'm entering this whole new, I don't know, last act of my life, if you will, you know, middle age, youth has got, youth went at, at age 30 and middle age kind of went at, at, at age 60, but my life is kind of like this life of pie story, you know, it's how do you interpret things, and I don't know where the genesis of all, everything is really, you know, it's, everything's this constant flow, but I went out sailing when I was, you know, 11. My brothers and I banged together boats for a pond, you know, when I was like 9 and 10 years old out of old roofing boards and stuff. And I just loved the water. And when I started sailing out of sight of land, which was when I was, I guess, 12 or something like that, it just felt like home to me. You know, we had this little day sailor, this guy who taught me how to sail. And I lay down in the bottom of the boat and the boat healing over, you know, it's kind of water level and you're there, you know, kind of zooming along and it felt, it just felt like home to me. And I've, I've always felt it more at home, I think on the water than on land. And, um, then when I, you know, got a little older, I was reading everything in print, you know, about water and sailors and whatnot. And there were a couple of books that really attracted me. One was, uh, Robert Manry's Tinkerbell. He sailed a, converted town-class sloop that was designed for, you know, sailing around the bay or a pond or something or other, and sailed it to England. It's a little 13-foot boat. And the other was John Guswell, who circumnavigated in a boat called Trekka, a 21-footer. And I don't know, I just could put myself in those situations like, well, you know what? Here's a life of adventure that's available to you. You don't have to be really rich and it may even help not to be too smart, so it's right up your alley, you know. And I, I just fell into it, and and it was just a, a passion of mine for my my whole life. And you know, by the time I got out of school, I'd help the guy build a forty footer and taught myself celestial navigation and was single handing a twenty five footer. And you know, it's just all I want, ever wanted to do. And then I got into design and teaching design and building boats and all that. And so I've just been mucking around with boats my whole life, and. Um, it's been very rewarding. Um, I, I, I guess my, in my life, I tend to try to go with the flow as much as possible and not go up too much upstream and try to avoid as many rocks as possible going downstream. But opportunities just crop up, and 
the amazing thing to me is like 30 years after being adrift that it's led to me to work on a, a, a film, the caliber of Life of Pi, with these incredible people um, who've become, many of whom have become good friends. And, uh, and to, see, to see the sausage making of, of movie making, um, I love movies and it's, it was just a tremendously interesting experience. Steve, I got to uh, brag you up for just a minute here. Um, you talked about trying to film a survival experience. Not a lot going on there, you know, except for uh, deprivation and, and uh, killing time. And, and uh, here's a quote from the book. It says, the biggest mistake in a survival situation is to hope too much and to do too little. And mm-hmm. how, I, how I'd like to brag you up is, is you were not just simply adrift for 76 days. You were an incredibly high-end survivor. You worked your ass off to survive those 76 days. You made water. You caught fish. You had a, you had a traveling uh, a school of fish that went with you, uh, made spear guns and stuff. Uh, you navigated. You made a sextant out of three pencils and pretty much kept track of where you were. I mean, really, yeah, really yeah. high-end survival uh, skills there. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, I've taught survival, and I've been involved with lots of survivors over the years, not just nautical survivors, although many. I know a lot of people who've been on the edge before in various ways. But, um, and I, you know, do talks and stuff about survival. And the one thing I've learned from the hundreds of people I've talked to who are sur- real survivors is that for most real survivors, survival is not a passive activity. It's an active pursuit. And that's something that changed in a very dynamic way um, in, for mariners after the Second World War. Alain Bombard, uh, a Frenchman who was a doctor, really noted that a lot of people were dying who really shouldn't physically. Um, and so he set off in a boat called the, the Heretic, um, which basically was the creation of the Bombard configuration inflatable boat um, that we all know is a typical sport boat now. And he wanted to live off the ocean and cross the Atlantic, which he kind of did. There was there's some controversies, which I won't go into exactly, but generally it changed the way that we looked at ocean survival. Um, before that time, most people was like, you know, oh, you lay around and hope that a ship picks you up. But in fact, if you do that, your chances of survival are actually pretty minimal. Um, you you got to deal with problems. You got to prioritize. You've got to figure out. You got to ration. You've got to figure out how to live off the ocean. And when I summarize a drift or the experience, what I tell people is, well, look, I like. Something hit my boat, it flooded with water. I bailed out into a six-foot inflatable raft, drifting 2,000 miles, learning to live like an aquatic caveman. <laughs> and essentially, that's what it's like. And when you're first, the early stages of survival, for everybody, but you know, in, in particular for ocean survivors, is that once you bail out, you successfully bail out, the next stage is something we sometimes call recoil, and I call disorientation and fear. Your whole old life has gone away. The ocean is pristine. You don't know. It hasn't developed an ecosystem yet around your immediate survival craft. And it's like, how on earth can I live out here? But slowly things evolve, an ecosystem develops, and you kind of learn to live off of this. And that's all reflected in 
all that stuff that's in Life of Pi, the book, I think. Um, I can't really speak for Jan Martell, but he must have gotten it from our books, you know, Dougal Robertson especially, I think, but mine and Kuhn Lim as well, is how this journey evolves. And that's what we tried to show visually on screen. You know, in Pi, first of all, he's on this lifeboat, but he can't stay on it because there's a tiger there, so he makes this kind of rudimentary little raft that doesn't work very well or not at all. And it slowly, as you see through the film, it evolves into this rather elaborate craft with all these tools and stuff, which were hugely fun to make and um, in design, and and try to get to work in a wave tank through the filming without coming apart. And something else that we really tried hard to do was to be authentic. Um, we only used the materials and the tools that Pi actually had at his disposal. Everything's made the way he, you know, a survivor would make it. And um, although it's real subtle, a lot of stuff in the background that, you know, you may not even register, but it's all there. You know, we made lures and spears and the shade canopy, water collection system, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, that was really, a, that was a ball for me, working with the prop guys. I just I just can't say enough about them. They, they kind of uh, adopted me when I was over there, and I just had a, had a lot of fun with them. Well, you're handy and artistic to start with, so you, you'd make a great prop guy, too. We are talking to Steve Callahan this morning. He uh, not only survived and uh, wrote the book Adrift, he's got another one called Capsized I highly recommend, too. Uh, three fellas upside down in a trimaran for, uh, what, nine months or so, I guess, and they don't get along well. Um, but Steve was the self safety uh, survival consultant on the new movie Life of Pi. And he's sitting in the car looking out at Lemoyne Beach this morning, uh, chatting us up. Steve, third act here. Are we going to get another 30 years out of you? You still get to go boating? <laughs> I, I hope so, Mike. I really, it's a little early for me to tell. Um, I'm dealing with, uh, with leukemia right now. Oh, yeah. And I'm doing well at the moment. I had a, a stem cell transplant, but I'm very restricted in what I can do until next June anyway. And then we'll see. I, uh... I've also had kidney operations and whatnot, so I ain't the young guy. I ain't the young spring chicken I used to be, but I still try to get around as best I can. And um, I'm feeling real positive right now, and I certainly hope to be able to uh, to do more offshore trips. I, I love the offshore environment, but if I can't, you know what? This wrinkly coast of Maine is pretty appealing, and I can you know you can always get out here and uh, explore this incredible coast that we live on sounds like you're in a kind of another survival situation you're just now surrounded by uh you know modern medicine and and people instead of the ocean and, and a six-foot raft yeah it's it's all it's kind of you know there obviously every survival situation just like every individual is unique but there are huge commonalities in terms of the arc of the survival experience things that people um, go through emotionally and psychologically and um, and the strategies that we employ to be successful survivors. Um, like I say, an active approach, you know, and I don't care if you're, if I'm in the hospital bed, it's like, well, the best thing for you is as soon as you can get up and walk the hallways. So, you know, I became kind of legendary at the hospital. They're making fun of me, you know, for doing, you know, for being the, the walking Olympics up there and stuff like that, because I found it really helps, you know, it's hard. Um, 
life life is a survival experience to one degree or another. And um, when you go through these really intense par- portions of it, you really have to try to do your best, even if you just got to kill yourself to do it in it almost. And, but you can, and you can get through, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm a piker compared to a lot of people I met, honestly. Um, what people can go through and come out the other side is really quite astounding. Mm. Steve Callahan, thanks for speaking with us on Boat Talk this morning. I'll tell you the same thing on the way out here. I say to my friend Alan Sprague here every once in a while, Proud to know you sometimes, buddy. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, likewise. Good job. I love you guys' show. I, th- I, I think it's great that you're bringing maritime uh, news and chat to, uh, to everybody out there. I really appreciate it. Yeah, wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. we got to let you go so we can talk about another movie on the way out of Boat Talk today, Steve. Thanks. Thank you, Steve. We are doing Boat Talk this morning. Uh, apparently... Uh, we uh, ain't got a lot of time for incoming falls calls. We're hoping to get uh, Greg Roscoe from Falmouth on the phone up next here. And Greg got hold of us because he is making a movie on a subject that become uh, very uh, big here on Boat Talk, which Never was seems to end, the Raw Faith Saga, yeah. a uh, call from God to a uh, man named George McKay. He was commuting back and forth between Maine and his uh, engineering job down in Massachusetts, and he's sitting in too much traffic one day, and God told him to build a boat and uh, take his handicapped daughter sailing and stuff. They uh, built a boat in Addison, Maine. We saw it on TV one night. I saw it. I saw him hanging plank with a nail gun. I sat up and went, wait a minute. Yeah. And we was right down there, been on it ever since. So, Greg Roscoe, are you there this morning? I am. Hi, guys. Good morning, Good morning. Greg. How are you? Greg, Thanks you're having ma- me on the show. Yeah, you're, uh, let's start right off. I noticed that your business here is called Seaworthy Productions. Yes, well, yep, it's one of them. There's a lot of people in Maine uh, do. We, we juggle uh, a couple of balls to make it all work. That's, that's one of them. So you're a, uh, you're a, uh, you're a filmmaker, and you've got a taste for the water. You want to explain yourself a little bit more? Sure. Well, uh, the, my, my first film, uh, there's, there's a theme to the, the projects that uh, have attracted me, and uh, it was in 2008. I had just finished up the uh, broadcast distribution logistics for Ice Blink, which was the documentary on the world voyaging martin family from bremen dave and jaja martin oh we've had them here yeah they've been on the show you too. made a movie about dave and jaja and i don't wow ice blink ice blink i've heard of it oh my goodness it's it's sad the connections that don't all get made here but it's a good thing we're doing boat talk and there, bring them out there you go so um you know i'm just as a philosophical point of view, I am attracted to stories where people step off the hamster wheel of life and uh, look at alternative things. And uh, the Martins were really interesting because it wasn't that they uh, stepped off the hamster wheel of life. They never stepped on it and, you know, lived a, a good portion of their family life just living an alternative lifestyle, as you know, on the water. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the Ice Blink story. And uh, in 2008, I was wrapping up all the national broadcast uh, distribution logistics for PBS and uh, 
just all the, the things that, that go there and was thinking about my next project. And I think like you, I had seen uh, Bill Green's Maine, read the Press Herald, and yep. saw this really fascinating story about this guy up in Addison uh, who, it, it, this, in 2008, at this point, he had already built the boat and launched it, uh, but was, was uh, getting ready for his Phoenix Rising Act uh, after uh, the dismastings that, uh, he had gone through earlier in, in the 2000s, and I said, "This is a this is a story I probably want to look into." And uh, in the course of doing that, uh, I went up, talked to George, went up and visited Raw Faith uh, when he was up in Rockland. And uh, George mentioned that uh, another filmmaker, David Berez, uh, out of Camden, had already been shooting a bunch of footage uh, prior to the boat being launched. And uh, so I was kind of, you know, like, ah, darn it. And I ended up going into Camden and talking to David, and uh, we found some common ground and uh, decided to pool our talents. And uh, we decided to uh, continue working and and telling the story of uh, George and Raw Faith. And uh, over the the years, we've uh, collected seven, eight years uh, of the story, video, videoing uh, the story, uh, spending time on the boat, getting to know the family. And uh, we're now in uh, post-production, uh, trying to spit the film out in uh, early in 2013. You got a hold of us, Greg, and you asked if, if you might access some Boat Talk archives to uh, sprinkle into the story at all. And I just signed the release this morning. Very happy to have the idea. It could be in a movie, you know, especially <laughs> without appearing uh, photographically. So, um, uh, too cool. Where, where are you at in the production of the movie? Uh, we're finishing up the editing. Um, and the logistics are to pretty much uh, finish up the editing and, and get the, the finished product out. Oh, in the first quarter of 2013, I hope, um, you know, you never know what little bumps, speed bumps come up, you know, as you get down in the weeds on this stuff. Um, but it's uh, full speed ahead. And, uh, you know, it's been a couple of years since the boat went down and it's, it's time to finish telling the story and get it out. And that's what work, what we're working to do. Greg, uh, we've talked to this too. Uh, part of the coverage of, of uh, Raw Faith on Boat Talk was kind of hampered by the fact that I got to be really good friends with these people. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a people story, and the family really got themselves in a corner there. And that's a huge part of the story that I found it very difficult to approach on Boat Talk. How have you gone about that part of the stuff? You, you're certainly on to that, aren't you? Well, that that is a. Uh, it's it, obviously that's at the you know the heart of the story, and I'm not going to uh, you know you're going to have to wait and see the movie. But um, uh, yes, you're you're hit the nail on the head. That's a a, a big part of the story, and uh, you know we've really tried to approach this, and you know as you know. People have strong opinions one way or the other uh, about the raw faith story, and uh, one of the things that we've 
really tried to do is to uh, not have uh, an agenda and to really approach this as storytellers. Um, you know, kind of go in and uh, really get to the essence of, of what the story is, is all about and uh, be true to the integrity of the storytelling. And that's, that's pretty much all I can say and, and sums up uh, the, the stylistic intent of, of how we went into this. We always tried to pitch it on Boat Talk, or I did especially. Alan got to be uh, between the Boat bad, Talk, bo- Boat Talk, and the Raw Faith uh, people. Uh, I was a good cop. Alan was a bad cop. And uh, <laughs> when we first went down there as boat builders, uh, we were pretty much thunderstruck. Right, right from you know getting out of the vehicle, and. Uh, I always tried to frame it in that these people have a dream. You got to let you got to let the dreamers go. And, and George not only had a dream, he was able to execute it through an enormous pile of labor, money problems, family problems. I mean, he made that boat and it floated. Absolutely. You know, I think um, just the, when you when you see the film. Um, again, I'm not going to you know talk about Raw Faith or George or the family, but uh, the monumental nature of the effort that was taken and the personal and material effort uh, that went into this is is just one of the compelling aspects of the story that makes it so rich. It's huge. Is and as uh, my my friend David Breads has said, it's a uh, it's an epic. Greg, what uh, you know? Cannes Film Festival, Sundance. Where 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 are we going to be at, man? Well, HBO. Come on. The um, I'm uh, building my own boat, um, so that's that's I guess another sort of connected theme that we all have here on some of the, a lot of the people you've had on on boat talk. You can't tell us that with less than 5 minutes left in the program. Well, Greg. I'm gonna, I'm going to leave this. <laughs> and people always say, "Well, you know, where are you going to go um, you know, when you get the boat built?" And what I always tell them is, "There are no trips until the boat is built." And I think the <laughs> uh, and, and and so I've got to sort of stay focused on getting the boat built and and then I can think about the fun stuff and to to your question, I'm not being coy, but uh, there is no end game until there's a film to distribute. And so the yeah. very first thing is to throw all my time and attention into uh, making this as good as it can be, getting it over the finish line. And then, you know, clearly film festivals. Uh, we, we certainly want to uh, tour the state in New England with some theatrical showings. Um, I think that this would be you know, perhaps a, a really good piece for, for PBS and, and, and maybe some other uh, distribution options. But again, uh, you got to stay focused on pushing it over the finish line or the other stuff. You know, there's nothing to feed the engine. Too cool. Did you hear um, at all our interview with Steve Callahan about making the life of Pi with Ang Lee? I, I, I caught, yes, I caught the, probably the last half of it. In fact, I think his, you know, the quote that you threw out there. Sausage it, making. It, it, it's not... No, it's it's not just a survival quote. I think it's a, a quote to take to heart for life and certainly for all mariners that the um, biggest mistake people make is to hope too much and do too little. And I, I think that's a that should be a life motto, not not just a survival motto. Uh, so I loved that. I, in fact, I wrote it down. 
That's uh, right from the book Life of Pi. I was browsing in it over the weekend there. So, Greg Roscoe, uh, 1 to 10, how far along is your boat that you're building? 2.5. Oh, jeez. Uh, I've got the, the keel laid. I have the frames made, and I have the engine sitting in the garage, and I have the uh, engine mount uh, on the keel. What are we building? A uh, Bueller-designed diesel duck. Diesel duck. Not familiar with a diesel duck. It's a trawler. It's a, uh, it's a 48-foot trawler. Nice. Okay. Not a sail, but, well, that's okay, too. We have a small sail. That's okay, too. It has a stabilizing sail, yeah. Mm. Greg, yep. we're going to have to keep track of you. There's no no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And we're awful glad to talk to you this morning. We signed the release, uh, mailed you some boat talk logs. You can, you can uh, make of it what you will. And if you happen to put us in a Hollywood movie and we get real famous and our heads swell up, well, you know, that'll be about right. <laughs> All right, we'll have you back in uh, early in 2013 yes. when we've uh, got this thing ready to go, and let's 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 talk let's, talk some more. Can't okay. wait. Uh, February or March, we'll look forward to it. All right, great. Thank you, Greg. Oh, oh yeah. boat talk this morning goes to the movies. Yeah, we got got just enough time to squeeze in one little quick note due to our friends at Off Center Harbor. Yeah. Also speaking of movies, that's a uh, online movie site. Uh, for the uh, Brooklyn Mafia have put together a, uh, a whole series of uh, mostly wooden boat videos. Very interesting to look at, though. Offcenterharbor.com. Our friend Maynard Bray, I believe, is involved in that. Yep. And uh, could we point out that Maynard Bray was one of the original hosts of Boat Talk, along with Joel White. Uh, much more big, uh, knowledgeable people than us. He's the uh, real thing. Yeah, and somehow we ended up sitting in the chair after all these years. So there... Uh, offcenterharbor.com, I believe, is the website. So uh, some pretty cool boating stuff there. Boat Talk comes on the second Tuesday every month. There's a website, boattalk.org. Um, Alan Sprague and I do other things here. I'll be back tomorrow morning doing the Barefoot Blues Hour. How about you, Alan? I won't be back here tomorrow morning, no. I'll be here Thursday afternoon doing another music show. Extra Large Soul Extra Show. Extra Large Soul Show. Yep. And community radio is, uh, you know, about who shows up and what happens uh, while they're doing it. And we are getting ready to go back to the music. Rich Hillsinger, he's a, a boat person himself, the director of the Wooden Boat School, among other things. He'll be playing three hours of music on the wing here. And uh, <laughs> 10 o'clock every day, weekday, there's a public affairs show on WERU. Boat Talk's glad to be one of them. Uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned for Rich Hillsinger. I used to buy the bills of boat, and I used to buy the sails, sir. I used to buy the catches of fish and take some home to lie, sir.